to a new RFM. We're talking travel, Sally Lucas and I. And Sally, there are some places that are just shrouded in mystery. Is that where we're off to today? It certainly is, Jane, and I think it's shrouded in mystery for good reason. Now, we're talking about Borneo, which is the third largest non-continental island in the world, and it's located north of Java, Indonesia, and it's considered the geographic centre of maritime Southeast Asia. Now, the island is divided among three countries, however, Brunei, which is an extremely small sultanate, Indonesia and Malaysia, um, and approximately 73% of the island is Indonesian territory. But the Malaysian states of Sabah, and Sarawak in the north occupy about 26% of the island. But Brunei, little tiny Brunei, only occupies about 1% of the land. So it's amazing, isn't it? Now, it's surrounded by the South China Sea to the north and northwest, the Sulu Sea to the northeast, and the Salibi Sea and the Makassar Strait as well to the east, and the Java Sea and the Karamata Strait to the south. That's the stuff of legends, isn't it? Isn't it? Absolutely. And to the west of Borneo, you've got the Malay Peninsula and Sumatra, and of course, to the south is Java, and to the east you've got Sulawesi, and the northeast the Philippines. So, it's got all these other little places around. It's quite close to the Philippines, actually, the top part of the island. Um, so, is it a good idea to combine a couple of these other countries? Or it is. I mean, you've got to remember with um, Brunei, the Sultanate, of course, that it's very different. It's got very strict rules: uh, no alcohol, no smoking, etc. But you know, a, a very wealthy little Sultanate, and very interesting to visit. Um, and you've got some wonderful national parks and forests, which people may or may not be aware of. Now, I guess the thing we most of us have heard about, of course, are the orangutans. Um, you know, the original wild man of Borneo, as it was known, the, the orangutan. And, of course, they've got all these uh, beautiful causes now to save the orangutans because, you know, we have been deforesting and, you know, it's, it's been a quite a sad case. And there's lots of wonderful conservation projects that are happening to, to help the orangutans, you know, get through all this, I guess is the way you can say it. So, yes, you can divide it up into quite interesting. Generally, you would fly via, say, Singapore or Kuala Lumpur. Um, depending which way you want to go, and then into Kota Kinabalu, which is the main point of entry. Um, then, of course, you can do Mount Kinabalu. Now, that is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, I know it's not Everest, but it is the highest mountain in this Southeast Asian region. And it does get very cold at the top, and you can still get altitude sickness. Um, it's a two-day, one-night climb, and they do suggest you go in a day prior to help you acclimatise. Um, we had a friend did it actually not that long ago and she runs marathons and very, very fit lady. And she had difficulty with both the cold and the altitude. So it's about 4,000, roughly 600 metres. Mm, that's high enough. So that's fairly high. And people don't mm. think, if they think it's in Malaysia, it's not going to get cold, you know, but it does. You're going up fairly high. So of course it's going to get cold. They used to have, they've got little huts and dorms where you can, you know, stop along the way and, and break the journey because you want to get there, obviously, for the sunrise at, at the peak. Um, they used to have warm showers. They don't anymore. So just to warn people, you, you're not going to have any in the way, real mod cons on this climb. But it is supposed to be really spectacular and you've got lots of beautiful forest that you're walking through. So it's not like a... I guess a lot of the Nepalese mountains are a bit more barren, if you like to say, but this is a very forested part, being in, in this part of Asia, of course, which has rich tropical forests. And the other thing, the Borneo rainforest is 130 million years old, and it's considered, or they've, they've stated that it is definitely the oldest rainforest in the world. So you are going to a very special part of the world when you're going in into this area. And as I said, you've got lots of national parks, and you can stay in longhouses, you can do river trips, 
shops. You can go to turtle sanctuaries, um, etc., etc. So it's a very diverse country, but it's still a very unspoiled country. I think that's the beauty of it. Like you've got pristine waters, you know, which are great for snorkeling, kayaking, swimming, etc. You know, the beaches are beautiful, white sand, clear, clear beaches. Um, it's not a big um, thriving metropolis like Singapore, Malaysia or Hong Kong. So you don't have the big city syndrome. You know, it's by comparison, it's they're much smaller cities. Um, you've got Kuching as was one of the other main cities there as well, as well going to Brunei, as we've mentioned. Um, and you need to, I guess, Unless you've got a lot of time where you could go by road or on an organised tour, probably in some respects it might be better to fly like between Kota Kinabalu and Kuching, depending on the time frame that you've got and how much time you're wanting to spend there. Because generally most people will want to then spend a few days either in KL or Singapore, you know, on the way. So it seems you've got to go by that way. We did have direct flights once, but um, they stopped, unfortunately. So we don't have that benefit of being out, well, not out of Sydney anyway, by able to fly direct in, into Borneo. But certainly a most interesting country, Jane. And what we might talk on next is just cover some of the real adventure-based and special things you can do whilst you're there. We're talking travel on to NURFM, Sally Lucas and I, and a bit of adventure in Borneo. Now, the mind boggles. It does, and there's so much to do and places to go. It's just wonderful, actually, and it's great for children for that reason as well. So not just for adults, you know, they can take a lot of this on board as well. And we did mention Mount Kinabalu before, and they do take children on that as well, just to Up let you mountain. know that. Yes, mm. they say they recommend 10 is probably the youngest age they would recommend to be for, from a safety point of view. And there are different um, types of climbs you can do. You can do the, the ferrata, which is the one using the chains, is that Italian word, or the non-ferrata, and there's different yeah, parts of the mountain to climb, actually, depending on your ability and so on. So, yeah, but you can Google that um, and just, you know, mountkinnablue.com, and it's the actual uh, website for that particular mountain and, and the trekking that you can do there, which is interesting to read. Um, the other things you can do, as we did mention, is the orangutan sanctuary, and now that's at Sepalok, which is near Sandakan. And, of course, Sandakan, I guess, a lot of people would remember it was an, an awful part of our war in that region where we lost so many Australian and British soldiers on that Sandakan march. Only six out of two and a half thousand survived, um, died of all sorts of illnesses. And it must have been very things. tough conditions there. Yeah, really tough conditions. And you can go to a memorial there as well if you're interested in that part of the war in, in the Asia-Pacific region. But the Sipalok Orangutan Rehabilitation Centre was set up in 1964 to obviously rehabilitate orphaned baby orangutans that had been left in And this is in a a lush 4,300 hectare forest reserve, which is quite fantastic. And, of course, it attracts tourists and researchers alike. And you can actually even work in these places as a volunteer, too, if you want and help with research and so on. That could be fun. It would be great, I think. Um, You've got a boardwalk that takes you through to a viewing gallery and feeding platform, and you can see them being fed milk and bananas twice a day at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. by the rangers. And it also attracts the long-tailed macaques, to the area as well so you're not going to just see that and also you've got to remember in Borneo you've got those really weird monkeys the proboscis with the great big nose long nose they're from Borneo as well so they've got some quite unique creatures from that part of the world Um, so just Keep your mind that you can do that. They're open from 8 to 5 p.m. Um, so you can, there are public buses and taxis available from Sandakan Town that will take you in there. Or, of course, you can do an organised tour, needless to say. Now, also, whilst you're in that area, you'd be mad not to do Turtle Island Park. 
Now, this is where you get... Let me guess. Are there turtles there? Oh, and lots of them. And you know how in Australia we might only see those hatchlings or the eggs being laid in the hatchlings once a year? Well, it happens far more frequently here. So you've got more of an opportunity to almost be guaranteed, if you like, that you're going to see something like this happen. So this uh, park is 40 kilometres north of Sandakan in the Sulu Sea, and it consists of three islands, and the main one is Selangan, which is where this um, uh, turtle sanctuary is. So it's a safe haven for the endangered green and hawksbill turtles, and it gives you the rare opportunity to watch them land, do their landings there and lay their eggs and so on. And then also, of course, if you come at the right time of the year, you will get to see the hatchlings as well. And there is a website for that as well. If you go onto Sabah Tourism, it's a great website, and you can have a look at all these things I've been talking about, whether it be Sandakan or Sepalok or Turtle Island Park and so on, and it gives you all the details. Um, the turtles there lay their eggs throughout the year. But the best time to head there is between July and October when the sea is calmer and you can observe the collection of eggs, tagging of the mother turtles and the releasing of the baby turtles into the sea. So just keep that in mind and that would be something great to experience as well. The sea would be fairly warm there, I suppose. It would be. Yes, mm. I, think that's, I guess that's why that they are able to, to do that. Um, and the other things that are quite interesting over there, they've got lots of caves. Um, one's called the Gomantong Cave, and it was described by the World Wildlife Fund as the best managed edible bird's nest cave in the world. You know, you hear of bird's nest soup, you don't really think people are eating it, do you? You think it's just a name or a misnomer? Um, but apparently they actually do. And this is in the heartland of the Gomantong Rainforest Reserve, and it's been the focus for bird's nests for centuries, apparently. So since the 13th century, Chinese traders had come to Sandakan in search of these bird's nests, which is a prized delicacy amongst the Chinese. And they're found nearly 100 metres up on the ceilings of these caves. And harvesters put their lives on the line, literally, climbing up networks of rattan letters and ropes to, to get to the nests. Isn't that amazing? I really didn't think... And it's still done the same way it used to exactly. be. Exactly. Exactly. And um, there are two uh, cave complexes here. Complexes, sorry. One's called the Black Cave, which is soaring up to about 90 metres high, and it's the more accessible of the two. And the other one, just to be different as opposed to Black, is the White Cave, <laughs> where the more valuable nests are found. And, um, yeah, this is interesting. So there's a boardwalk, and you can get into these caves, which have swiftlets, which are the ones that make these nests and also of course bats amongst other things such as around the area there's serpent eagles bat hawks and kingfishers as well and even you can see a few wild orangutans even in that that national park also so this is all in that sandakan area so there is plenty for you to do as i said there's a lot to do in borneo consider it when you're thinking of somewhere you might have been to all the more usual if you like asian destinations but this would be something lovely and anyone that i've ever booked there and even the staff that i've known in offices that have gone from the travel agency staff have all come back every one of them and we're a pretty critical lot <laughs> when it comes to travel but everyone has just fallen in love with borneo and loved the whole area the place whatever they did they enjoyed Travel is the topic on 2NURFM for our sponsor, Travel World on King. Sally Lucas, there is always something you can learn from other people's experience when you're travelling. Absolutely, Jane. And I mean, we do talk about little tips every now and again, but I haven't done it for a while. I just thought over the next couple of weeks, we might just go through some things that are do's and do nots, if you like, things you should do and things you shouldn't do uh, when you're flying. And things have changed a lot over the years, as we all know, particularly since 9-11 with security and, and all sorts of things have changed with baggage and 
you know, I think we just need to just refresh so that we're all a bit aware. And if you pre-plan everything before you go, of course, as we all know, it makes life so much easier, hassle-free. You don't want to get to the airport and be hassled because you've done something wrong and you have to open your bag and take everything out and, you know. So I'll just sort of, we just go through some of those. Um, what This has been put out by Travel Secure, which is part of um, the government, a government website called Travel Secure, or one world, word, sorry, infrastructure.infrastructure.gov.au. Um, if you go and have a look on there, it's, it's got a mile of information and a mine of it as well, but lots of it, it may not you know, be relevant to you, but a lot of it you will find. And if you're a business person, there'll be more, or a sporting person, they've got sections for, you know, just about everything. So just have a look at that. But as they said, the main thing is to take airport and aircraft security seriously and give yourself time to clear airport screening processes. So don't run late. Be there early. Now, with the international these days, it's a minimum of three hours. It used to be two, but it's three. And, and that's probably because of the lines going through is. security. And the security is far more intense now, and they, they do screen far more closely than they used to. And, of course, with the liquids, aerosols and gels now that you can't take in your carry-on unless they're 100 mils or less and in a Ziploc clear plastic bag. So, you know, if someone's got all the wrong sizes, then they've got to come out and they've got to go back to the end of the line and that holds everybody up. So this is what I'm saying. If you can be prepared for before you go, number one, you're not holding yourself up. You're not holding everyone else up either. It's a courteous, a courtesy, should I say, to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, just these some quite obvious things that I'm saying, but I just think it doesn't hurt to say them anyway. Cooperate with the requests and directions of screening officers and airport and airline officials. Tell screening officers if you have any medical conditions, such as a pacemaker that might affect the screening process, or you might have like a, a hip, you know, a metal... In, in, sort of, you know, artificial part in your Mm -hmm. body, whether it be knee, hip or whatever, carry a medical certificate or letter from your doctor if you need to carry hypodermic needles or prescription medications. Uh, Place any small valuable items you may be carrying in your carry-on luggage before you get to the screening point. Okay, so keep them somewhere separate. If you're departing from an international terminal, as we've just mentioned, place the plastic resealable bag containing all those little products we said of 100 mil or less onto the screening conveyor belt. They want that separate, not just in your hand luggage. You take that out and put it on a tray or on the conveyor belt separately. Is there a limit to the number of 100 mil containers no. of liquids and gels? No, just so long as they are 100 mil or less, that's the main thing. Also, if you do have a laptop, they want you to take it out of its case and place it again into a tray on the screening belt. Um, they may ask if you're a, someone with a wheelchair or a pram or other mobility device, they may want to screen that device as well. Um, check also with the airline you're travelling with beforehand if you're unsure whether a particular item will be permitted on board or check with your travel agent, obviously. No, either leave those items at home or you put them in your checked baggage. Okay. Um, now, if you're departing from a domestic terminal, um, you may be able to leave other arrangements, like if you had a family member, you could just leave it behind or something like that. But internationally, there could be certain things that you'll just have to surrender mm. and they'll take them from you. And you wouldn't get them back? No. No. So it's really important. Um, you know, you can't pack, as we all know, sharp objects. Objects such as knives, scissors, even corkscrews, you know, in your carry-on luggage. Um, you must surrender those items or have them again in your suitcase. Suitcase is fine because you can't access that when you're on the plane. It's down in the hold, you know. So what you've got to think is if anything could be perceived to be a weapon or sharp or dangerous, it must not be in your hand luggage. Um, and the other thing, of course, don't ever leave your luggage unattended. 
because people do put things in. It's, we've heard of this happening, as you know, it does happen. So just please be aware of all that. Um, the other thing too, as I said before, sporting goods. Now that will vary from airline to airline. Some of them have a, a free service, like if it's to Bali, for an example, because everyone goes there to surf, they have a special container that they can put surfboards in. But otherwise they might say you must do it a certain way, have it packed a certain way. A bicycle usually has to have the wheels come off it and be packed. Um, you know, if it, fishing rods must be in a tube. Um, golf clubs. Golf clubs, yes. Packed a certain pa- way. Packed a certain way. So these are all things you do need to check, obviously. Carry-on luggage will vary. It's usually seven kilos. And please stop coming on board with all that extra luggage. What you've got to remember, what people don't think about, that plane still has a load factor to get off the ground. Right, so it's it's not just funny; it's it's really quite serious that you do not overload what you take into that cabin with you. Be responsible and think about it, and you've got to share that overhead locker with a lot of other people. And if you've got, for example, a briefcase, stand it upright so more can be fitted in. Don't pack it flat. Think about how you put that item into the overhead locker. And do remember, if you do hit turbulence, the more weight that's in that locker, that it flew open. You know what I mean? That could be dangerous injuries to everybody so they're just all little things to just I guess it's common sense really isn't it when you stop to think about it but think before you pack think before you get to the airport and it'll make the whole process be a lot smoother and a lot easier great travel tips thank you Sally Lucas and we'll talk travel again next Friday after the one o'clock news on to a new RFM